Hey, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've introduced a brand new mission statement. And uh, do you know it yet? Anybody brave enough? Try it with me. We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. That's what we're sent to do. That's, that's our mission given by God and uniquely for our church. That's how we want to live that out. And with that, we also introduce new core values that define not only what we do, but now who we are. And so we started with the fact that it's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He's the senior pastor. He's the leader. He, it's, it's his church. It's all about him. And if we only had one core value, that would be the only one we'd have. It's all about Jesus. But then we went on and we started saying that another core value for us as a church is that God wrote it all down. It's all in the Bible. Everything we need to live this, a successful Christian life and to honor the Lord uh, is written down. And God didn't make a mistake by forgetting to write some things down or anything like that either. Where stands it written? That's where we look to for our final authority on life and practice. And then last week we talked about our third one, that all people matter. That all of us are created in God's image. And because all people matter to God, they must matter to us. Now, I sent you an email this week. There's some things about that that we got to make sure we know that all people matter doesn't mean too, right? That, that uh, we don't get involved in unhealthy relationships so that we're not able to serve people. Uh, but they all matter to God so that we're, we're just to love them and invite them to follow Jesus with us. Amen? That's what we're ought to do. Well, this morning we're going to get to our fourth value, which is this, that we all need friends. We all need friends. You do. And I do. And I'm going to make a case to you from Scripture that God created us that way, needing friends and needing relationship. And then next Sunday what we'll do is we'll come back and we'll wrap up with our fifth core value, uh, which is no sacred cows. Nothing gets in the way of us honoring Jesus. If it's, if it's Jesus is sacred, his word is sacred, uh, but anything other than that, we're going to say, you know what? We hold it with an open hand and we may really like it. We may like the color of the carpet. We may like uh, the songs that we sing, but at the end of the day, we go, you know what? Uh, we can let that go because we're holding on tight to Jesus. And if more people meet Jesus because of letting go of this, then we're all for it. Amen. So we'll talk about that next Sunday, but today uh, we all need friends. So before we dive in, would you pray with me? And then we're going to actually be at the very beginning of the book today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter one. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and for your grace to us and to me. Lord, you don't deserve it. Uh, We deserve your wrath. We're sinful and messed up, but you love us. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would uh, work in me and through me, that you teach me even as I teach. Uh, that you'd help me to communicate this truth well. Uh, I believe it's very clear in your word. And I pray against the enemy who would drive us to hide and drive us to isolation and uh, uh, drive us to not be in relationship and in community with others. And it hurts us, Lord. So help us to, uh, to be obedient, to learn from your word. And Holy Spirit, might you change us today to be more like Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. Well, this morning, before we get going, um, I want to start with some theology. Are you okay with that? Let's start with some theology. Do you know that God, our God is Trinity? Do you know what I mean by that? That that God is Trinity. He's, uh, let me, let me say it this way. The term Trinity, it, it never shows up in the Bible. 
You maybe have heard it taught, but it, but it never shows up in Scripture. So what does it mean? Where does it come from? Well, really, it's just shorthand to, to communicate a whole boatload of theological truth in one word, that God is Trinity. Here's, here's how you might define it. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, this can be a hard thing to understand, but in, in summary, it's, it's one God, three persons, or you might hear it described as three in one. Now, what we're not saying is that there's three gods. Uh, Muslims will uh, accuse Christians of saying, no, there's three gods. No, we're not saying that. We're saying it's three persons, one God. Now, is that hard for you to get your mind around? It is me. It's tricky to understand. And so there's been all kinds of ways of people trying to explain this over time in the history of the church. And I'm going to offer a few of them to you today. But you need to know on the front end, none of these are a perfect illustration of what it means that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You might have heard the one uh, maybe comparing him to an egg. Right, and you, an egg. You have one egg, but it has uh, the shell and the yolk and the white of the egg. Right? You've heard that one. That's one way. Maybe that's helpful, but it's not really perfect because God is uh, all three are equal. And when you go with an egg and and the shell and the yolk and the white, they're not all equal, are they? I mean, if you have high cholesterol, they tell you not to eat the yolk, don't they? So that means there's something different about their nature. So. It's helpful, but it's not a perfect illustration. How about water, H2O? Uh, somebody, some people will describe the Trinity like water. Like, you know, you have, uh, when it's frozen, it's solid and it's ice. And then uh, when, it, when it thaws, it's liquid and it's water. And then when it uh, uh, gets hotter, it evaporates and it becomes water vapor. Now, that's great too, but again, it's not all three at the same time. I had somebody tell me one time, actually, there is, there is a point, some weird thing where it, it is all three at once, but I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I, I only understand water vapor, water, and ice, so it, it isn't helpful for me. It's not all three at the same time, whereas God is all three at the same time. Uh, maybe the most helpful is to think of, him, uh, in, think of it in terms of the role of a person. As, as, as a man, I'm, I'm a father. And I'm also a son, and I'm also a husband, and I can be all three at the same time, uh, but I'm one man. And, and I function in different roles depending on uh, how, that, how I interact with those people. And again, that's not perfect, but it's maybe the most helpful way to understand God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they're distinct persons. See, that's where it falls apart because as a person, like uh, me as a father, I can't be friends with me as a husband or me as a, as a son. Like the Trinity is mysterious in the sense that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always in re- loving relationship with one another. That's hard for me to get my mind around, but uh, the Bible says there are some things about God that are going to be a mystery, and I believe this is one, but the Bible clearly teaches it, so we believe it. Now, God in his very being, are you still with me? You still with me? All right. God in his very being has always existed, always as more than one person. In fact, God has always existed as three persons, yet one God. It's important then to remember when we talk about the Trinity, that any attributes we ascribe to God are ascribed to all three members of the Trinity. So his eternality, it's not just the Father, but it's also the Spirit and it's also the Son. They're all eternal. 
um, uh, all his his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his his wisdom, his infinite holiness, his infinite uh, love, his omniscience, and so forth. They they apply to all three persons of the Trinity. And and when I think of the Trinity, sometimes uh, we don't think of the Trinity. We think of it maybe as being just the New Testament teaching. But the reality is it shows up in the Old Testament. And that shouldn't surprise us because if God is eternal and the Trinity is eternal, wouldn't it make sense that he would show up not just in the New Testament but also in the Old Testament? This idea of Trinity. And, and the Trinity, I believe, does multiple times show up in the Old Testament. Open your Bible to the very beginning. If you've never opened a Bible before, it's going to be easy. We're at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And in verse 1, and we're going to start here. These opening lines of scripture actually reveal, uh, I believe, the Trinity. Let me try to explain it to you. We're laying a foundation here for where we're going this morning, so hang with me. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And when you read this, if you look at it, you see at least probably two persons of the Trinity here, don't you? You see uh, God, I believe God the Father, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, you see the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. But this passage gets even more interesting to to show the eternal nature of the Trinity, uh, of, of who God is, when you start to study how some ancient rabbis understood it. And a group of ancient rabbis, when they were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic, and by the way, they were doing this about 150 to 200 years before Jesus was born. They did a word study, and uh, they found out that the word beginning here, which is Rashid in Hebrew, they found it it was used synonymously a handful of times in the Old Testament with the word uh, in Hebrew, bakor, which means firstborn. And so they concluded that beginning and firstborn uh, really are kind of the same. They're synonymous. They can be used interchangeably. And what they did when they translated this passage into Aramaic, they actually translated this word both ways. 200 years before Jesus shows up, almost. Here's what they wrote. In the beginning, by the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. And I think you see the Trinity here in the word beginning. You you see the firstborn, Jesus. Paul tells us Jesus is the firstborn. And then you see God, the Father. And then you see the Spirit. Now, if if you really love theology, you're kind of nerding out. You're like, oh, that's really cool. If you don't, hang with me. I want to show you that the Trinity is eternal. And here's why it matters. Keep tracking with me because we're going to work through this first point on your bulletin insert. I'm going to really drive you nuts now because we're going to work through it backwards. We're going to start at the bottom of your page and work our way up on that front page, okay? So if you're a little OCD, you're not going to like me. But don't worry. When we get to the second page, we'll go right through it just like it's written. You with me? All right. So keep tracking with me. So in the beginning, I just told you God created everything. And I believe the Trinity was involved in creation. And the Trinity even shows up in Scripture in the first two verses of the Bible. Uh, Everything was created by the word of the Father, the hand of the firstborn, the power of the Spirit. Now, if you're still in Genesis 1, fast forward a few verses when God uh, creates man. Look at verse 26. 
Then God said, this is after he created everything else. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here's more of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why would God use that pronoun? Why a plural pronoun like that? Well, some, some people look at it and they say, oh, it was, it's a plural of majesty. Alexander the Great was like that. You know, in uh, uh, speaking of himself, um, you know, we, we desire food. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. You know, the thing of a king, like just speaking of himself with a plural pronoun, a plural of majesty that's called. Um, we are pleased to grant your request, you know, speaking as the king. But that doesn't hold water because that's never used anywhere in the Old Testament or in Old Testament Hebrew. Um, another suggestion is that God is speaking to angels. Let us create man in our image. Well, the problem is there's nowhere else in the Bible that it talks about angels being involved in creation. It actually talks about them being created. Um, so the best explanation, again, I think, is that we see the Trinity show up here. And so when we consider this, we looked at this verse last week, and the thing we looked at about it last week was our very nature, that we're created by God in his image. In other words, to be like him. Are you still with me? So what I want to commend to you is that being like God means that in some way, imaging him, we image the Trinity, not just Jesus, not just the Father, not just the Spirit, but we image the Trinity's image. See, if you keep reading through Genesis 1, you get to verse 31, and after God created everything, God, said, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, he said. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So we get to the end of Genesis 1. We've seen the Trinity at the very beginning, the Trinity involved in creation, the Trinity involved in the creation of us and saying as the Trinity, let us create man, let us create man and woman in our image. And then God says, and it was very good, very good. Now we get to Genesis chapter 2. Some people who are opponents of Christianity or opponents of the faith, they'll say uh, there's contradictions between the account of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but really there's not. Uh, Genesis 1 is a summary. Genesis 2 kind of backs up, circles around, and gives us more detail of it. Uh, Genesis 1 is actually a poetic summary. But, but look at Genesis 2. We, we, Genesis 1 ended with God saying everything was very good, but what we see in Genesis 2 is that there was actually something God said was not good. Do you know what it was? There was something that God said was not good. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, this is after he had created man, after he created Adam, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God said everything was good, but it's not good that Adam's alone. Now, if you're on a, in a, at a Bible college, people joke that that's a good pickup line. You see a girl at lunch, hey, God said it's not good for me. That's yeah, lame, I know. But hey, you could use it. But, but see, there's the one thing that God said was not good for us to be alone. Why would he say that? Why would he say that that's not good? It, it's not good for us to be alone. You know why I would say it? Or why I believe he says it? Because when we're created in his image, uh, part of our image is imaging the Trinity, and it's imaging that relational aspect of the Trinity. And so it's not good for us to be alone, because if we're alone... We can't fully image God. 
if Adam was left alone, he, he would only bear God's image. It would be incomplete. He wouldn't have a way to fully image God. Are you tracking with me? There, there's no way he, there was no one else to be in relationship with. And so what happens is they start the search. They, they start a search. And, and uh, you, you could even say in one way then, Adam's created lacking and needing, isn't he? There's no one else there for him right away. So they start searching to provide for Adam's need. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. But, and the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So with God's help, Adam starts looking for a suitable helper, someone else he can image this relational aspect of God with. But he finds none. Why? Because nothing else in creation bears God's image at this point except for Adam. No one else does. Nothing else does. None are like Adam, who is like God. Now, I would argue then that part of our nature as image bearers is that we're created to exist in friendship, in community, in relationship. God created Adam this way, and God, in his wisdom, he knew he was going to create Eve to be in relationship with him. But, but we're clued in here in the story the way Moses writes us to, to know that it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be isolated. Because we bear God's image, and part of that is being relational. Therefore, because we're created as an individual bearing God's image, the truth is you and I, like Adam, we're created lacking. We're creating needing. We're created needing something. We're needing what? You're created needing friends. You are created needing friends. Do you know that? Do you ever wonder sometimes why you feel lonely? It's because you bear God's image. <laughs> and God is never lonely. He's in relationship with himself eternally. Do you ever wonder why you wish you had a friend? Did you ever wonder that? It's because you bear God's image. I hate to tell you this, but uh, animals don't have friends. Humanity has friends because we bear God's image. We image him. We relate to one another in that way. The, the reason you feel those things is because you bear God's image. And you and I were created needing friends. And thankfully, we have a God who provides for our needs. He provided for Adam's in a wife. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And when he, when he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, Adam said, when he lays eyes on her for the first time, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's someone else who images God. And she shall be called woe man when he saw her. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, it's impossible to image God apart from relationship. You and I are created needing friends. It's in your very being. You can't go through life alone. 
and fully image and fully honor God. You need friends. You need community. Now, when we say we need friends, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point you in the direction of saying this is why we have 110 groups. And this is why you ought to be involved in a 110 group and be involved in community somehow. But when I say we need friends, I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying, hey, we need to get more people into 110 groups, although we do. I'm not just saying we need more 110 groups, although we do. I'm not just saying we need to make more people feel like they belong or to close the back door, though we do. I'm saying uh, this is who you are. This is how you're created, needing friends, craving relationship. It's part of you imaging God. Now, we're made to mirror when we image God. I often describe when we image God, it's like a mirror, right? We're created in his image. And and think of it like we're holding a mirror. And you hold this mirror, and I'm not God, but I reflect him. And Adam and Eve, when they had their mirror holding it up, uh, they reflected God perfectly. Jesus, without sin, reflects God, images God perfectly. He's the perfect image of the unseen God, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. And we, we image him. And what, is it, what does a mirror reflect? Well, whatever it's pointed at. And so what happens is when Adam and Eve sin, uh, their mirror, it's like they took a rock to the mirror and shatter it. And then they start pointing it at other things that aren't God. <laughs> and uh, they try to find their value and their worth there when they need to point it at God. And they still image God, but not perfectly anymore. It's broken. It's marred, the Bible teaches us, because of sin. And part of the thing that's marred isn't just the fact that they sin, but also that relational aspect. Their need for friends becomes more pronounced because now they can't have friendship the way God originally designed because of their sin. It's broken. It's messed up. They, They took a rock to it and it got shattered. And if you're still confused, if you're still wondering if I'm right about this, that part of the way we image God is relationally, look at the way God responds to Adam and Eve after they sin. Let's just read the whole account from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, did God and men don't get a big head because Adam was standing right there and did nothing just because he's speaking to the woman We're we're to blame too. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, he lies to her. He says, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. There he was. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, not in a good way. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? 
Then the man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He accuses God for the good thing he gave him. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, if again, again, if you wonder how foundational this relational aspect is to who we are as image bearers, look at the next line, next couple lines of God's response. He starts with the serpent. Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now look how what he says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Look at verse 16 now. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What God is saying here is there's going to be strife now in your marriage. There's going to be conflict for you relationally because of sin. And you're not going to image me the way you were designed to. And in fact, it's, it's, it's just going to be broken and marred in your sin. And this doesn't just go for relationships between a husband and a wife. This goes for relationships in general. Our sin messes it up. See, this is our second point. Sin tears apart community that God creates. And it causes us to isolate ourselves. When Adam and Eve sinned, when their mirror got shattered, what was the first thing they did? They ran to hide. They ran to hide. They they didn't stay in relationship with one another. They didn't stay in relationship with their God. They, They ran and hid from them. What what sin does is it tears apart what God has put together. It tears apart relationships because it's, it's, it's something about the way we image God that's messed up. Friendship, as it has been known in the garden, both with God and with each other, is distorted now. And isolation ensues. Adam and Eve hide when they sin. And isolation is really dangerous Because what isolation does is it takes us away from what God designed us to be a part of, which is friendship and community. And when we isolate ourselves and when we hide and when we don't have uh, other friends who who are walking this walk of loving Jesus with us, it's bad news. Generally, more sin ensues. And we continue to hide even further and we get caught further in our shame. And this is what sin does. It tears apart what God joined together. You know, this even happened to the Trinity in the New Testament. When Jesus dies on the cross, what does he say? Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time, Jesus, now he didn't sin, but because of our sin that was laid on Jesus, he became sin for we who knew no sin so that we could have his righteousness. When, when he bears our sin, uh, when he dies, there's separation in the Trinity. And for the first time, he understands what that uh, relational gap is like. And if you look at the passion with which he says it, that's a huge tear. And we live with it every day in our sin. Loved ones, you're created needing friends, but in our sin, we rip those relationships apart. And left on our own in our sin, we have no hope of those relationships ever being restored. We're left lacking. 
Now, when I talk about isolating ourselves, I'm not talking about being an introvert versus an extrovert, right? That, that's part of how God's designed us. I, I tend to be more of an introvert. I'm, I'm energized sometimes by, by pulling away, being alone. Some of us are energized by, by being out among all kinds of people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about isolating ourselves to where we're not known by anyone. And we're not a friend to anyone. That's the isolation that's dangerous. And what I would commend to you is that left on our own in our sin, we have no hope of that ever being restored and life is going to be miserable. Even if we know Jesus. And in fact, I would say that only the church can truly fill that void for, the, for community. That's what God offered as a fix in his design is to give us each other, to give us the church, his people, to fill that void for community. See, Jesus is the one who reconciles us with him. He makes true community possible again because he's restoring our image. I told you about a mirror and it's like it gets shattered by our sin. When you trust Jesus and you become a Christian, uh, this process begins of piecing your mirror back together, of having it restored. You don't believe me? Here's what, here's what Paul says. For those whom he foreknew, Romans eight twenty nine. he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, Jesus is our big brother. We're being conformed into his image. And in Colossians, he says, uh, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our image is being restored if you know Jesus. And, and in knowing Jesus, the other thing Paul teaches us is that we're adopted in, into family and, and we're reconciled through him. And Jesus is the one who does this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. He does this by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He's talking about the rift between Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, uh, God, in his grace, restores relationship in the church. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's the Trinity again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What, what Paul's saying there is that Jesus is restoring community. He's, he's adopting us into his family. He's restoring us, reconciling us with the father. And in, in a sense, that image is being restored where we can be in relationship with one another. And that happens as fellow citizens, as saints, as part of the church. And I would commend this to you that we're saved then as a church to be a community, not a church of individuals, to be a community of God's people loving one another, working together, not individuals who are isolated from one another and just show up to sing songs together on a Sunday morning. We're to be in community with one another. Jesus gave us the ability to experience life the way God intended, and that includes community and relationship and friendship, not isolation. 
And it enables us, by the way, also to be a friend. Because sometimes the reason we're isolated is because we're wanting everybody to be our friend, but we're not stepping out and loving other people and being their friend. And I guess here's the last thing I would point out to you when we talk about needing friends. God, God, it's, it's part of our image. It's part of who we are as we image God. Our sin is messed it up. Jesus restores it. And when Jesus restores it, we're adopted into God's family. Like we sang earlier, we're kids of grace. And God designed the church to function as a family. As a family. God designed the church to be family. You know, I would say that God letting us image him relationally might be one of the greatest gifts he gives us. Because we get to experience love. We get to experience friendship. We get to experience things of who he is. And you are adopted into family. Did you know that? And family is supposed to model the community and model that type of community and image God together. So are 110 groups. See, Colossians, that 110 and 110 groups comes from Colossians 110. Paul's praying for the Colossians that they would learn to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they do life together and grow and, and grow to image God more and more perfectly as they follow Jesus together. Uh, when we hire a new equipping pastor... Uh, he's going to help us do this much better than we do it now. But, but this core value of needing friends and, and that we're part of a family, really it explains a lot of why we do what we do. Part of the reason, again, we've talked about this before, but let me remind you, part of the reason a couple years ago we, we eliminated Sunday school and we eliminated all of our midweek ministry is because we want you to be involved in a 110 group. We said, you know, if you're going to give an hour of your week each week to come on a Sunday morning, and then you're going to give maybe, most people will maybe, not even most people, but they maybe will give one more hour during the week. Where would we want them to give that hour? Would we want them, I mean, it'd be great if they're serving somewhere, like when we had Awana, right? That'd be a great thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Or if they're in, in student ministry, when we had that during the week. Yeah, that's a great thing. That's a good thing. But we said, where's the best place for them to give that hour? The best place is in a 110 group. Why? Because there you start to have that image restored in a unique way that doesn't happen simply by serving. There's a theological reason why we pulled stuff out of the week. And so that we would, that's your option. <laughs> get in a 110 group, get connected. And as we do that, I want to end with this. Paul Paul lists a whole bunch of one another's in scripture. You ever heard of these? You ever heard somebody talk about the one another's? The one another's are how we're to treat one another in God's family, in relationship with one another, as friends to one another. And what's curious, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through them with you here in a second, but when you look at them, I want you to ask yourself, um, some of these can be lived out as a large group on a Sunday morning. The vast majority can only be lived out in smaller groups. So where are you living these things out? Here's a list of the New Testament one another's. First off, uh, God says, love one another. Uh, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. And almost 15 times then later throughout the Gospels and in the New Testament, we're told to love one another. 
That could maybe happen in a big group like this, but really it happens best in a smaller group, doesn't it? Be devoted to one another. Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. To be devoted to one another, again, that's, that's hard to do with three to 400 people. You know, if, if everybody shows up here on a Sunday morning who's here at least once every four to five weeks, uh, there'd be uh, close to 400 adults who are part of our church. Do you know that? It's a big church. That's hard to do that, be devoted to one another entirely with that many people. That's more than one person a day for the rest of the year, the entire year. That's hard. Maybe you need to do that in a smaller group. Honor one another. In that same verse, Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. He goes on, he says, live in harmony with one another. In chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. In Thessalonians, he says, live at peace with one another. Uh, here's another one. Stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 14, 13. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. In chapter 15, he says, accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, instruct one another. Later in chapter 15, you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Again, that's hard to do with everybody on a Sunday morning, right? But you could do that in a small group. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You're like, okay, that's where I draw the line, Josh. Paul says in Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I would argue that's contextual. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, it's descriptive of how they would have greeted one another in Paul's day. It's not prescriptive, saying so you got to go around kissing everyone. Some disagree with me, but it means greet one another is what it means. In a friendly way, in an appropriate way. Maybe it's a handshake. Uh, agree with one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You know, one of the ways we're united together as a church is if you're involved in a 110 group and then we're studying again during the week what we learned on Sunday morning and we're all kind of moving the same direction. Uh, We wait for each other. 1 Corinthians 11.33, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. That person who's late to your 110 group, wait to eat till they get there. Wait for them. Have equal concern for one another. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Serve one another, Galatians 5. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Galatians 5.26, don't provoke or envy one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Bear with one another, Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. But Colossians 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You know, as I was thinking about this one this week, it occurred to me, it's a choice to be offended by someone. Did you know that? Bearing with someone means I'm not going to be offended by them. I'm going to overlook it. Maybe I tell them, uh, you know what, that, that was hurtful. I, I didn't appreciate that, but I still love you. Offense says, I'm going to hold that against you, and now here comes my rebuttal, and I'm going to get back at you. And all that does is hurt you. you. 
bearing with one another means I'm, I'm going to choose not to be offended. I'm going to recognize you and I are both messed up. We have shattered mirrors that Jesus is piecing back together. And I'm not going to be offended by that. It's a choice. Just like it's a choice on this next, next one uh, to forgive. I think I skipped one here. Be compassionate to one another. Uh, but look at this next one is a choice to forgive one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. How did Jesus forgive you? Completely and fully. Never to be brought up again. That's how we're to forgive one another. And that's a choice. I've got a choice either to forgive and get better or be bitter and be angry. And that only hurts me. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices. 1 Thessalonians, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Hebrews 10, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 25, don't give up meeting together. Look at this one. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, as it relates to us meeting friends, this is a huge one. Do not neglect meeting together. I know some of you, your job, it precludes you from being able to be here every Sunday. And I'm not throwing that in your face at all. But you have the opportunity to get involved in a small group where you can meet regularly. Where you can be connected. Don't deny that. I mean, especially as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews says. Now, if you watch the election, do you see the day approaching where Jesus is coming soon? I do. So what should we do to be obedient? We should meet together more. We shouldn't, at least we shouldn't neglect meeting together. It should be a priority for us. Um, don't slander one another. James 4. 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, be kind to one another. James, don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Loved ones, I'm telling you, and I think I made the case this morning, you were created needing friends, needing relationship. Are you following Jesus and getting plugged in, in relationship and community and being known and knowing others? A great way to do that is in a 110 group. It's not the only way, I know that, but it is a good way. And I would commend you to be a part of something like that. And be known by a few and know a few. We all need friends. It's a value of who we are. It's a value of how we've structured our programming. It's, it's how our, our student ministries work. It's how our adult ministries work. We, we want you to be known and be loved and to love others. Amen? Let me pray. Uh, we're going to sing, and then we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, it's clear from your word that that part of the way we image you is this desire and this need for relationship, this craving to be known and to be loved. And not just to be known and to be loved, but also to to love and care for others. It's, It's unique in who we are as image bearers, Lord, because that's who you are. Father, I pray for each one here. Um, our tendency when we sin is to hide and to, to isolate ourselves and to be away from community and away from relationship.
I, I pray for each one here that uh, whether it's in a 110 group or some other uh, community of some sort, Lord, that, that they would, would be connected and have friends, Jesus, who love you and honor you and that the friends that they can spur one another on to know you more and more. Father, we need friends. Um, I pray you'd provide them for us and help us to be friends as well to them. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen.